Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers. I am your host, Jeremy J. Fissett. On this episode, we get to meet Ryan H. Walsh. Ryan is probably best known as the lead singer, writer, and guitarist of rock band Hallelujah the Hills. But he is also an author, as we are coming up on the two-year anniversary of the acclaimed book he wrote about the Boston underground music scene in the late 60s. In this chat, Ryan and I discuss everything from his band's newest album, which they released last fall, to the process of taking a deep dive into research for his book. We also touch upon his beginnings as a musician, which didn't start really until his high school teachers gave him the guitar as a graduation present. So please enjoy, and thank you for listening. This is me meeting Ryan H. Walsh. Um, good morning. It's, I know it's early for you, it sounded. <laughs> oh, I was up, yeah, I was up real early today. Okay. But that's okay. I like, I like mornings. Enjoying the snow. Yeah, it's weird. Where are it's, you again? I'm in central Connecticut. How, is there snow there? We had like 15 minutes of flurries. Uh-huh. Um, I think northern Connecticut got an inch or two. Yeah. And then you guys um, probably got actual snow. Yeah, it's 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 starting to turn to rain now, and it's it's going to be gone by the end of the day. But it was pretty this morning. I know, and everyone always freaks out when it snows in April. But I feel like it snows in April pretty often. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, famously, uh, it snowed. I think on April first, and we get a whole week of school off. Oh wow! Because it was so bad. Oh wow! It was pretty great. Did you? Was that in Boston? Yeah, dead. I'm right outside of Boston, where I grew up. Mm. Yeah, I've never had that experience. Not even here. Yeah, it snowed for like a minute. It was pretty, but it was melting immediately. And then now it's gone. It's not even raining. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But we barely got any snow this winter. So that's I true. Was, yeah. yeah, I was okay with it. I don't know how it was in Boston, but I imagine it wasn't too different. No, it was um, extremely mild. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Kind of, I actually don't mind the snow. So I kind of was wishing that we got a little more. Yeah, I like I I like it. Even the annoying things like shoveling, I like doing a few times a year. It's yeah, you know. I think we only had one snow where we used our snowblower, and it was like it was actually before winter started. But that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you're just starting this podcast. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was thinking about it for a while. Um, yeah. And I kept putting it off, but now that we're all sort of homebound, mm-hmm. um, I figured now is as good a time as any. Um, so I've been fortunate and, and 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 pleased by the response. I've been fortunate enough to get a response from from some people, great, um, including yourself. So thank you for for agreeing to this. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. Um, I I don't know if you recall, but we have technically met already. I think so. Can you remind me though? We met very briefly at uh, one of Marissa's shows in Providence. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. I don't remember what year it was. It was a couple years ago, but 
it was uh, you, you tweeted at me asking yeah, if yeah. i was there and i yeah. was like oh yeah i am <laughs> yeah i remember this um, yes so i met you very briefly before i had to leave 2015 or 16 it was somewhere in there i yeah. forget which i think it was her um strangers tour it so definitely that would, was that, yeah so that would make sense um and yeah so i you know i i interviewed her and i interviewed um senior abinos for the needle drop and i just i enjoyed doing it so i for so many years was intending to do this so i figured i i would just do it <laughs> cool that's what we, yeah it's it's been fun that's great you are my uh fifth guest <laughs> all right <laughs> i hope i really hope i have a couple more and i really i really hope it doesn't dry up after like seven people <laughs> uh, well like who do, thinking of who to ask or people saying yes um i've i've sent so many invites in the first week um yeah i kind of wanted to try to get as many as possible early on just so i'd have it built yeah, out yeah. for a few weeks um so i got some people saying yes like like yourself and then i got some people who were saying no and the no's were usually because they were busy recording right now or they're not doing interviews right now um I which could it. just that could just be like you know code for like they don't want to be on your little podcast <laughs> it could but but i'm trying not to least, be too cynical about it at least i'm not doing interviews right now holds water i don't have time right now to, i find that hard to believe yeah and i and there has i won't name names but there have already been people yeah who have who i mean of course i'm mostly speaking to management and agents so i'm not really speaking oh, to right, right. yeah because i don't have direct contact info for most of the people that i'm inviting yep um but so the, i've already had some people whose management will say oh you know they're they don't have time right now. They're unavailable right now. And I'm like, okay. And then the next day they have like an Instagram live thing for like five hours of them doing nothing, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, okay. <laughs> anytime I, I get it. Anytime I was able to circumvent a manager agent and ask someone something directly for the book, uh, I always found better results. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that the, the only problem is most people don't seem to have their direct communication available. Um, you know, you have maybe it's maybe it's just because we follow each other on Twitter, but you have your messaging open on Twitter. I think it's um, I think it's only if I follow you. Okay. No, I can check. I'm not sure, but I've most never been, people. I've never been like bothered by people inundating me, so I don't right. know. Most people don't have that open, which I understand why. Sure. Um, so I I haven't been able to to go at it that way. Um, Instagram messaging, you can usually message anyone, but I don't think the, like if they're verified on Instagram, I don't think they even see your messages unless they want to. Right. Um, so I've sent a few through Instagram and I have gotten crickets. So I, I don't think that's going to work. Um, hmm. So I either have been going through contact info on websites for agents and management, or I've been lucky enough to find an email address for someone. Um, but there are so many people who haven't responded yet that I, I hope respond. I've gotten a few maybes. I've gotten a few, oh, they're busy right now, but, you know, circle back in May and maybe we can make this work, mm. um, which is fine. And I, I will do that because I have, I think by the end of next week, I'll have seven done. And I put the first one up this week. The next one's up next Wednesday and I'm going to do weekly on Wednesday. So I'm built out through 
most of May. Yeah. So I have some time to hopefully get some people on. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. I've I've enjoyed talking with the people who I've convinced to come on. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I pretty much just want it to be a, I mean, yes, it's an interview, but I just wanted it to be a chance to talk to people who, who I like or who I admire or whose work I like or sure who I know have a lot of people who like them and and just sort of have a chance to uh I don't know I'm I'm not trying to do the whole like here's a question you answer it I don't follow it up next question like I don't want to really do that right um and I figured now is a good time for something that is sort of built on this idea of connectivity I yeah it's a good idea well, I hope it. I hope it keeps going because I'm enjoying it, and uh, I am working from home right now, and then I'll have the summer off, so I uh, I have time. <laughs> so many of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's my other thing too. Is like, don't we all kind of have time right now? I don't know. Yeah, um, it's funny because it's like we do have time, but um, it's also like uh, just to stay okay. You need a lot of time to just uh, do nothing or yeah or do things that soothe you because even though we are the action the visible action around us is boring it's us staying in one place yeah it is a scary and traumatic thing that's happening totally you know yeah so i can imagine that being a reason why you might not want to do a bunch of interviews yeah i kind of want to chill out no i i I balance everything so if i had a lot to do today you know i would have scheduled another day so (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. Sure. So uh, you're holding up okay in isolation? I am. Um, okay. I'm doing pretty good. Um, I like where I live. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to work from home mm-hmm. on a several couple different things. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I think I needed a a mandated break. <laughs> yeah, I could understand that too. <laughs> are, we, are we, by the way, have we started? We have, this is all okay. started. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Uh, we could start over if you want. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Um, uh, this all got serious while we were on tour for the new album we put out in November. Yeah. Um, did you have to stop touring? We did. Yeah. See, we we gathered to leave on um, like the 11th of March. And we had a discussion. We were like, okay, there's this thing. It's called coronavirus. It's serious, but the CDC is saying like no crowds over 300. And mm-hmm. we're, we're always going to be 200 shy of that. <laughs> at our shows. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we just made... Uh, at the time, what was our best educated guess? Uh, um, an okay, right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, each day we woke up on that tour, it felt like the world had shifted over one yeah. one whole notch. Yeah, and we were just reacting to information every day. And you know, our president certainly didn't sound the alarm anytime early. Nope. Um, so <laughs> barely still is. Right. Or yeah. And so um, we kept saying, well, um, if the clubs are still doing this, we'll, we'll, we'll keep pushing for a while. But then Brook- Brooklyn was uh, Sunday night and they canceled. And we we're like, oh, Brooklyn canceled. 
let's uh, play tonight in Baltimore, and then let's go home. So the 14th yeah. in Baltimore was the final show of, of the tour. So how many was that, like three shows? It was three shows, yeah. yeah. Did you, uh, I know you were booked for New Haven. Did you play New Haven? No, no, um, not ev- everything on the books got canceled. Yeah. Things that we hadn't even announced yet, we had to drop. Mm-hmm. like uh european summer thing and in, in west coast and so um of course it's the right thing to do and i uh i was not sour grapes about it uh, yeah. it was just highly surreal and then you know people were we hadn't toured in a long time because the book took up my life for a few years yeah so people and people have responded so strongly to the record people were very excited about us coming around which course was thrilling to us mm-hmm. and then um and then the, these are the shows that get canceled it was just kind of ironic and funny so the best thing we could do we had we just by chance happened to record um friday the 13th in washington dc mm-hmm. second night of the tour and um i put out that as kind of a live album you can download on band campus as a little consolation prize i mean it's it's a weird it's instantly a weird live record it's yeah. going to be so dated and frozen in time. We're talking about the pandemic from stage. Yeah. Ha- uh, half, you know, the, the thing was pretty much sold out and like only 20 showed. And so we're talking to people in, <laughs> we're talking to people individually. It's, uh, it's mm. something else. I'm, I'm really kind of happy and proud of it. Um, yeah. Well, it's like a, it'll be an interesting like relic from this time to look back on. If we make it. Yeah. If, I, hope, I hope we make it. <laughs> if we get more history. I know. I'm trying to be optimistic, but I think we'll make it. It'll just be like, what do we look like when it's over? Yeah. And yeah. do we want to go back to what we thought was normal? Right. What do we want to change? What do we want to keep about this? What do we want to bring back? It's, it seems like at this time when we can be making these really interesting, smart decisions, but mm-hmm. our ability to do that is completely frazzled by all the um, attention sucking that this uh, insane person who's in charge sucks from all of us. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, um, it's, it, it's super frustrating to me. Yeah. And everyone, I know. Yeah, it is. So you mentioned that the, you felt like the response to your new album, I should mention, I guess we haven't even said your band name, um, Hallelujah oh, yeah. the Hills, yeah. um, released, I think it's your seventh record if my count is correct, called I'm You. Seventh original full yep. yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you felt like the response to this one was particularly excited. Um, do you feel like it was your sort of most warmly received record yet? Um, From fans too? I mean, like, did well, you get that, that vibe? Well, uh, what I would say is it's different. I mean, um, you know, the first record, when that came out on Misra in 2007, um that was that that so surprised us by like um people talking about it and and championing it but um but then you know things changed and you you dip in and out of people's attention spans and uh the mm-hmm. last the last record we put out with words in 2016 a band is something to figure out it was pretty mild i mean the response and i uh, um and it was fine for me because I had to pivot right into the book. And so I was just like, okay, if people, maybe people like it more later or whatever. Yeah. But um, so, so 
I mean, I try to keep pretty low expectations or no expectations about everything I release because that seems like the healthiest move. So mm-hmm. when people started really having, people started having emotional, strong responses to this record that um, uh, took me off guard and surprised me. Uh, yeah. Just that it meant a lot to them and it, it was arriving at the right time. It was mm-hmm. certainly different than anything um, we've done in a while. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty big songs, too. They're big songs. And I think, you know, there's, um, there's, I think in prior albums, you could get a sense of who I was maybe from the songs, but, um, but it was kind of like an abstract sketch. And, and this, this was a little more, uh, concrete and a little more revealing. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, mostly honest and um, less interested in painting pictures with words and more of um, trying to explain what what it feels like inside for me or anyone at a particular time. So yeah, that, the lyric that was different. More conversational. Yeah. In a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The album starts out trying to erase the difference between the listener and the singer. Mm-hmm. you know that was intentional so are you are you the main lyricist in the band yes yes okay. so um uh, i write a song with um chords melody and a set of lyrics and then i'll bring it to the band and then we will arrange it together mm-hmm. um but um yeah I re- i'm trying to think if there's any exception but yeah, <laughs> i've written i've written all the words yeah yeah so did you always want to be a musician because you guys started in 07, but when did the band really like start? Was it a couple years before that? Yeah, late 05. Late Someone 05. just found pictures of our first show ever, which I hadn't seen, which was fun. <laughs> we look like little babies. Yeah, little time capsule. Um, I didn't always want to be a musician. In fact, I came to it kind of late by most standards because... Um, there was nothing about, I mean, I liked music growing up a lot, mm-hmm. but there was nothing about me that suggested to anyone around me that uh, this kid might be musical. <laughs> and it wasn't, a, and it wasn't a thing in my family, really, a, you know, a tradition per se. Um, but I was definitely creative. And um, some really thoughtful, generous high school teachers of mine who, who changed my life and are still friends of mine to this day, uh, got me an acoustic guitar when I graduated high school. Oh, wow. And uh, gifted me that. I mean, this is public school teachers using their own money. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, that's great. And so, um, and then that kind of started it. I learned, I took some lessons, learned some chords. And then, you know, through college, started to um, see what it would be like to try to write my own song. Yeah. And then, um, and then things just progress from there. But um, uh, I don't think I always wanted to be anything. Yeah. Did you? Did you have like a thing? Um, I think I. Yeah. I mean, I did at some point in high school. Um, I started wanting to be a, f- a filmmaker. Right. Yeah. Um. So I studied film in college, but I also studied English. So yeah. that's that's why my career is is in education now. Okay. Um, but um. Yeah. I didn't really when I like my dreams when I was little 
or even through middle school or most of high school did, you know, they didn't stick around. Yeah. I'm always absolutely shocked when someone has like a starting in kindergarten, a dream of a profession <laughs> and then they do it like that's no. wild. I remember, I mean, I did end up going to film school because um, I, I loved film and still do. And it seemed like a good avenue of creativity. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember a guidance counselor in high school where uh, they were like, well, you know, what would you like to do? And I had, you know, film school, filmmaker, but I knew that was like a out there. Yeah. So I tried to ground it and have something reasonable too. And I was just starting to watch Twin Peaks. So I was like, I don't know, maybe I could be an FBI agent as well. <laughs> and, so, and so the, um, the, the guidance counselor, this was like probably the breadth of his expertise. He was like, well, you could combine those perhaps and run security footage for the FBI. Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> you get paid to do this? <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah, that's like the worst of both of those worlds. It's just, it's just a Mad Libs style. Yeah. I mean, anyone, literally anyone could do that. Yeah. They can call themselves a guidance counselor. I mean, it wasn't. But like I said, those other teachers who really pushed me um, and saw that I was creative and, and fostered that, they were the they were the real guidance counselors. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, when you find a good supportive teacher, they, in my experience, also um, do a lot more for you. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And when they're invested in. Well, because the guidance counselors are, they have, you know, 200 kids on their caseload and Mm-hmm. They don't really get that I've known anyone. They don't really get very attached mm-hmm. to any specific student. Right. Whereas a teacher might kind of latch on to something they recognize in a student or two, which can be really useful for that student. Yeah, I don't even, I'm now thinking like, what is the history of guidance counselors? Why did they start? <laughs> I wonder, I don't know. The only, yeah, I mean, I'm I can sure see they them for, something. yeah, I think they help. <laughs> I think they help students who are having actual issues or emotional problems and i think that's very important and they probably do connect with those students but when it comes down to them trying to guide every single student in the school right right to a career path i just feel like for one that's stretching them very thin and two why like why is it them i don't know Mm -hmm. Why why, why do they know so much better about what you should or shouldn't be than your teachers or your parents or whoever yeah they're trained Uh, to help people like you said, with, with very difficult problems or abusive homes or, Mm -hmm. so, um, I don't know what kind of training they get to, uh, advise you in your career, but anyways, that's a very minor detail. And now we've heart, now we've really (laughs) dragged the profession of guidance. I'm going to hear, I feel like I know from a guidance counselor. I I know I'm in education, so I should just say a blanket statement that guidance counselors are very valuable when they're good. They're good. When they're good, they're really important. Yeah. Um, but I will say when I wanted to be a film person, I mean, the only, my, I don't remember my guidance counselor dissuading me from it, but I do remember my parents, while not dissuading me being like, well, yeah, but what, you, what's your job going to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's part of why I even became a, a teacher too, because you, it hit me at some point early on in college. I was like, wait, <laughs> like, wait, I do love this, but. I'm not moving to LA. I know I'm not moving to LA. Right. So I will have a very hard time making a living out of studying film. Uh-huh. 
Um, so then I, I started an English major as well, which has saved me a lot of hardship, I think. Um, and I do enjoy it. It was, it was always the only other thing I was ever possibly interested in doing. Yeah. All right. Well, um, then it works so out. I, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, and I mean, I do, I do music as well, but not as a career, just as a hobby, really. Yeah. Um, well, so. it struck me when I was at film school, um, all, the, all the film I really liked and all the music I really started to latch on to had a DIY aesthetic or story to it. Mm-hmm. Whether it be, you know, the way David Lynch made a racer head over years mm-hmm. and years with no promise of release or people would like it or, or whether it was guided by voices existing for a decade before anyone heard them outside of their town. Yeah. Those kind of stories um, seemed like a reasonable path for me. Like, yeah, I didn't want to move to LA and, I didn't want to take that path, but that was okay because the things I were looking up to, none of them had that story. Yeah. And it is true. I mean, there are plenty of musicians and filmmakers even who don't do the LA thing or even the New York thing. Um, and sometimes they, they still get their work out there and it, it, it does help you see that it's not impossible. Yeah. And to me, I think it's is nice. less, it's less about the place. It's not L.A. or New York, which I like both of them. It's about sure. it's about trying to, right out of the gate, be part of the system. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm here. I'm worth it. You should pay attention to me. I thought I, I just thought it would be, um, much more interesting and probably advantageous if you just started making stuff and yeah. then, and then seeing if you were improving and you know doing all that without you know um, some. Uh, corporation breathing down your neck sure um yeah i mean for me it was just that i knew i wasn't in any way interested at least not yet in relocating yeah and you know yeah it might help in some way to be in la and to be that person who runs into agents on the street or at your job or whatever and and knows where to send a screenplay or 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 whatever but i just wasn't interested in, in that that game really yeah and i'm still not i mean i still write and try to write um you know scripts but i still have no interest in in relocating to la so well i I mean it is what it is you wouldn't even have to if you if you wanted to engage and you had the goods you could still do it from wherever you are that's that's changed yeah well writing too i mean it's yeah it, it, it can be as remote as you want it to be that's right yeah yeah so you stayed in the Boston area. Did you ever, you didn't ever relocate? I've never lived um, anywhere else but here in Boston. Mm. Um, I've toured all over. Right. Um, certainly the United States and now um, uh, in a lot of different countries too. Um, I like traveling, but I also love here. Mm-hmm. And I love, um, I read this. I've I've always wanted to refine this quote. Actually, it's an interview with Stephen King where he said, um, "It takes a long time to really know one place." He was talking about how he's he's always lived in Bangor, Maine, and yeah. that always stuck with me. Um, I've I've looked for it again. I can't find it. <laughs> Maybe I made it up, but um, I do like long stories and long relationships and 
Um, and I like it here. In fact, one of those teachers who got me that guitar was worried about the geographical stagnation kind of thing. And maybe I should be kicked out of the bird's nest and, you know, stumble a year in another city. And, um, it was this whole plan on the table for <laughs> him to help me with some debt I had accrued if I did <laughs> leave the state for at least a year. It was it was this hilarious arrangement we were making. And at the last minute, I pulled out. And within a year, you know, I had started uh, Hills. And all, all these great things happened in Massachusetts in the following year. So mm. that was kind of a point of lesson for me well what is it about boston that you think keeps you there that you that you like about it because not a lot of people it seems go i mean i'm sure a lot of people go there and move there but it's not really one of the cities you hear about especially artists really flocking to well who were you talking to jeremy apparently the wrong people (laughs) because i like i like boston and 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 i've we've we've considered someday moving up there um but I'm just wondering what, I mean, I could ask that about anyone. Like what, what is it that keeps you um, or at least kept you in the beginning, kept you in the place you were in? Um, just, well, you know, you've got uh, family and friends, of course, which is a huge element, but then, you know, um, the landscape, the season, though, you know, the diff- the very different types of people you interact with, like you could, be in line at a Dunkin' Donuts with, you know, um, a construction worker with a super thick Boston accent and MIT scientist right behind you. Like right. that kind of, that kind of mixture I enjoy. And I don't know, people are really funny here. And uh, there's a kind of a beautiful Gothic eeriness to some parts of New England or a feeling that I like and tap into sometimes. And I mean, it's hard for me to answer this because I I have never lived anywhere else. So um, yeah, sure. It's kind of a shit answer. (laughs) Um, But um, people may not, well, it's getting expensive. It is. That's true. um, Which is terrible. I don't know. I don't know about people moving here or whatever. I mean, people move here for college all the time because it's called, it's fucking, we're rife with colleges here. And so there's a huge influx of people all the time. I mean, that's how I think you get, you know, a lot of the bands that come out of Boston is kids who met at college and then get cooking like the Pixies or um, we could name, we could name, (laughs) (laughs) who do we got? Speedy Ortiz. Well, that was actually going to be a follow-up question was about the Boston music scene because it's, again, you sort of always hear about New York and Brooklyn or LA or... Omaha or Austin, sometimes Baltimore, but I feel like the Boston music scene must be more robust than most press would lead you to believe. Well, um, I think in general, we definitely play second fiddle to New York, which is often earned, you know, because New York City is is often the epicenter of cultural art um, in the yeah. globe, on the globe. But for instance, when writing the book, I was shocked about all of the wild, cool counterculture art, music stuff was happening here in the late 60s that had been ignored or forgotten. And so that really changed my mind about what's going on now. Um, Just that 
don't pay attention to the national spotlight. Just pay attention to what's actually happening and judge it on that. Yeah. Um, because, um, yeah, it was like, you know, by the time you're 30, you've accidentally seen dozens of documentaries on the 60s. Mm-hmm. At least I had. And <laughs> and uh, not one of them had ever mentioned Boston. And it's, you know, always San Francisco, New York, Chicago. Yeah. Um, and so I was sh- that when I put the story together for the book, um, for your listeners, I don't think we said the book name. Astro- yeah, I was- yeah, I was going to get to the book. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I jumped the gun, but uh, <laughs> but it really indicated to me that um, you know some stories and scenes are overlooked and lost, and um, it's it's the job of people like me to find what lunch was left on the table and assemble a meal. I think. Yeah, and I feel like most major cities have a scene. It's just a matter of whether it gets any sort of national attention. And if it doesn't, it is often ignored. I mean, even in Connecticut, there's a whole New Haven DIY music scene that I, I don't even know much about. Right. And it's not, I mean, and Boston was getting national attention. I just didn't last. So, you know, you also have to be good about, your city has to be good about self-mythologizing almost. I mean, yeah. and New York's the king of it. They've kept it going. and yeah. And Boston was like, yeah, that happened. And anyways, let's move on. Like, you know, when I was growing up, I, I literally thought nothing happened here before Aerosmith. Music yeah. was. <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because in Connecticut, from my, you know, my youth experience when I was growing up and, and first discovering music, it felt like I never found a band from Connecticut. And of course, once I grew up, I realized there actually are a handful. Um, but I remember the band magic markers mm. um who were from hartford mm-hmm. and that was so exciting to me but now that i'm older i realize they were probably one of many 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 bands um in the area and they just managed to sign to a you know a decent label and have stuff put out and they got some some degree of national attention um and then when i you know later i learned about senior abinos and i learned Jonas Policeman is from here and Tune Yards is from here. And, you know, there are some good people from, from, from everywhere. It's just a matter of, like you said, self-mythologizing and keeping that mythology up, which Connecticut and maybe Boston don't really do a whole lot of. Yeah. I, and, you know, this is, it, it brings up an interesting point where kind of one of the early promises of the internet was um, this is going to dismantle the fame making machine and we're going to get, we're going to discover all the hidden geniuses that mm-hmm. we were primary, we were previously um, missing. And there's been some of that, but what I've noticed is it took 20 years to do it, but the system is just reconfigured and attached itself to the internet. So what, yeah. we, what we mostly hear about is the huge pop stars. It's true. Um, but you know, that said, um, I engage on Twitter a lot every day, and uh, yeah, you're a pretty you're a pretty uh, active person on there. I enjoy it. Yeah, I mean it's it's writing. Yeah. It's for me. It's writing and reading, two of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I mean is, um, I am uh, blown away or tickled or or cracked up by people um, on there all the time who aren't huge uh, famous figures. So mm-hmm. 
I just dismantled my own argument, maybe. But <laughs> well, yes and no. Because I, I see what you're saying, because when the internet really started to become a vehicle for artists, which probably wasn't until at least 2010, when people, maybe MySpace no, era a no, little no, bit. No. I'd say 05. So like the MySpace era. Yes. Um, and I know that there were some people from the MySpace era who it did work out for. Um, yeah, there were quite there were quite a few people who caught wind on on MySpace, and then that started to die out. Um, but so we we hear it all the I hear it all the time of things like, oh, okay, well the internet makes it so everyone can do it, everyone can release music, everyone can just do this. But the fact is that for every one person who sells a thousand things on Bandcamp, despite not having a label there are probably a thousand artists who get maybe like five plays a day. So right. it is, it is the same model because it's just the internet has, is inundated with people trying, you know, striving for that, that little piece of the light. Right. And um, it's the same idea as it was 30 years ago. It's just the internet is making it easier to do, but it's not really making it too, too much easier to succeed. Right. And there's, there's, there's also a piece of that puzzle, which I feel like people don't talk about a lot in that. Um, let's just talk about music, stick to music. Okay. Mm-hmm. So our connection and enjoyment and attachment to music is developed by repetition. And uh, when we were bound by CDs or tapes or physical media, chances were you were going to give things a lot of tries. Like if you bought, I, I for one had a budget for like an album every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. whether I liked it or not in that first spin, I kept listening to it because you I, invested in it because I invested in it. I was like, well, I was interested in this. Uh, I'd be so sad if I hated all of it. Let me keep listening to it. And so yeah. things were giving a chance that weren't like um, these instant earworms. And so um, without someone telling you that something new is worth those demanded re-listens, you, chances are you're just not going to do it. And yeah. um, so that's a huge element at play. Just the, with access to everything, nothing becomes important enough to repeat. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, I think about that with my own work that I put up because now knowing that when someone goes, if they do go to my Bandcamp page, that first song that plays, if they're not interested in five seconds, they're going to X out and they'll probably never go back. And if you find someone on Bandcamp who had, or anywhere for that matter, who had a, who has like an 82 on Metacritic, you might say, okay, well, and people are liking this, so I'm going to keep trying. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is definitely true. That is a good thing to think about, I think. And you're right. I don't think people do talk about that very often. Yeah. Yeah, so I, and, you know the gatekeepers are the people that tell us repeat this experience until you like it because trust me you're going to like it. Yeah, um, and uh, you know it's interesting to think about. It's hard. It's a hard. It's a hard uh, hustle. Yeah, and it definitely is a hustle. And I, I people might have thought originally that the internet would have made it less of a hustle, but it it kind of just changed the hustle. I don't think it really made it easier. No. Uh, no, it, yeah, it changed things and opened, it opened new doors, opportunities, it closed some Mm -hmm. and, um, but, um, it definitely wasn't, um, the magic 
bullet that maybe it was touted to be at first, which I, yeah, I, or maybe the people where I was listening to were saying it was. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I always felt like that was what you were told as well. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm yeah. not alone. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose we should talk about your book. Um, since if anyone Googles you, they will find that you are a band member, but also a writer. So you had a book come out. When was it? 2017? 18. 18. March. Of, okay. It's about two years old now. Oh, yeah. That's just over two years old. That's nice. Yeah. Um, called Astral Weeks after the Van Morrison album. So how would you describe the book for people who aren't aware of it? Well, the book is, um, it grew out of um, a story about Van Morrison living in Boston after Brown Eyed Girl, but before Astral Weeks, washed up on the run from the mob <laughs> and really on his last chance and him putting together, starting to write and putting together this masterpiece in Boston. And that started as a magazine story that just dealt with that story. Um, and then it developed into this book, um, which is this huge tapestry of all these other stories tied together with Van and, and this other person being our two kind of narrators. And so um, it's kind of a portrait of Boston counterculture in 1968 with a lot of Van Morrison. You know, for people who, who were just expecting the story of the album, um, that's all still in there, but there's a lot of other stuff too. There's more There's more about Astral Weeks than there's been in any other book. I will say that for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and it was so, I did it at the right exact time. I can't tell you how many people who were key interviewees have passed away since then. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was just I, a bit of lucky timing. I, I got it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it came to be a book in an unusual way because I wasn't thinking when the magazine article came out, people really liked it and shared it. And I just thought, gee whiz, neat. And I was, yeah. <laughs> and moved on to something else. And then I got an email from an editor at uh, Penguin Books, Ed Park, who said, um, you know, I think this could be a book. Let's talk. Um, so he reached out to me, which is, um, oh, I'm, told, I'm told. Yeah, that's really nice. And rare, I'm told. Yeah, I would think so. So he and I went to work in developing how it could be a book. And, um, you know, when we came up with the crazy structure and idea that you read when you read it, um, I th we both thought it was unusual, but really worthwhile. And it was also fun for me to work on something for years. I, you know, everyone, I think, kind of thought I had gone away to write an over bloated 33 and a third book <laughs> oh. <laughs> after weeks. And I was really, I like to confound expectations. So knowing mm -hmm. that just the mere content of the book was going to surprise people was really, that was a, a good motivator for me. I was, I was looking forward to that. Yeah. And is it a, it, would you describe it as sort of a reporting style nonfiction or did you try to inject something else into it? Um, it is reporting. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fact checked. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's lawyered up. <laughs> I mean, I had to, I had to follow rules uh, of my own design yeah. and of my editor's design and of, um, you know, Penguin's lawyer's design. So um, 
I was proud of it because it does function in kind of a poetic dreamlike way, but it's also um, factually accurate. Yeah. Um, so it kind of straddles a couple worlds. How do you even begin a process like that? Cause I imagine you must've really had to do a really deep dive into your research to get this whole story. Yeah, without an exaggeration, I mean, it took over my life for a couple of years. And um, I kind of made this, I was like, I don't know if I'll ever get a book deal ever again. Um, I think I can do this story good, but I'm, I'm just going to eventually going to disappear into this story. And hopefully things are okay when I come out. Um, and uh, things weren't <laughs> that okay when it came out, but that's another, <laughs> that's another story. Um, um, but I just went, yeah, I went all in. And when you ask how it came together, so Ed was like, um, you know, we came up with this idea, Ed and Ed, the editor and I, um, uh, about these rules, everything had to take place in 1968. It could swing, the story could swing to other years, but it had to anchor itself in 68. Every story had to anchor itself in Boston. It could go to other places, but it had to start or have an important part there. And then, you know, and then we, Van was a no brainer as one of our main characters, narrators. And then when I found cult leader, banjo player, Mel Lyman, uh, in a weird sense, in a weird way, he made sense as the other narrator is kind of the yang to the yang of Van Morrison. And then, so it was just about developing the, these rules and then learning everything I could about the year mm-hmm. and the parts that I was learning that fit one of the rules would float to the top. Um, and then, you know, and then it was just about, um, sculpting, sculpting, sculpting. I mean, I probably turned in a manuscript that's probably double the length of what you see in the stores and it was Ed's job to, you know, keep what was, um, compelling and was telling the actual story we were trying to tell. You know, there were times I was like, I was talking like a crazy person. I was like, no, Ed, it has to be like this Noah's Ark of information (laughs) and we have to put everything in he was like well okay ryan or we could also make a good book <laughs> yeah. so um i cannot thank i mean it was just a a really lucky break that um ed was my editor on this first book he was just so great and we're still friends to this day and, mm-hmm. um i can't thank i mean quite literally ed part changed my life for sure did you ever did you ever get any access to interviewing Vin morrison no, absolutely not. And um, I was uh, I was interested in it, and I tried tried a lot of different avenues. And um, but at a certain point, it was coming clear that um, I was not going to talk to him. Yeah. But then that started to become interesting too, because he started to function as kind of like a ghost I was chasing in the book, hmm. which also fits with you know like Lewis Astroweek's producer talks of Van is not the same person who wrote that album anymore. And so it kind of echoed or mirrored that it was this device that all of a sudden just really worked. But, you know, there's like two Holy grails of the story and we knew those at the beginning and it was, can I find the catacomb tapes and can I figure out what really happened to Mel Lyman? And Ed and I had to develop plans how to end the book. Um, depending on if I figured that out or not. Mm -hmm. And both of those quite late in the game 
came together and turned it and turned into yeses. So it was pretty wild. Yeah. Well, it's good that you were able to, if you couldn't talk to Van, at least you could, you could solve those other two riddles. Yeah. I mean, hearing the catacomb tapes, I would say was very likely more valuable than interviewing Van Morrison. I really, <laughs> I really do believe that. And that's not just, you know, making the best of a weird situation. Yeah. That's the truth. I mean, um, yeah. Uh, and it was hard to figure out if he had read it at first, but um, he hates to do interviews, but when he puts out an album, he kind of has to do one or two. Yeah. And a few months after the book came out, he put out a new album. I think it was called Keep Me Singing, maybe that one. Anyways, he was on the BBC, I think. And uh, I'm li- I, I was just paying attention to his interviews more than usual for obvious reasons. And he was he was like, he started talking about fake news in an interview. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, he's like, fake news. I've been rallying against fake news since day one. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? And then he's like, and these music journalists, they just make up anything they want. And I was like, uh-oh. And then without much of a segue, he goes, and Astral Weeks. I wrote it when I was 21. I didn't know I'd have to answer whole damn life. And <laughs> I, I think that was his review of the book. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> if, if I had to guess, yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would not expect um, anything less based on his personality and based on be me doing my job. Are there any aspirations to write more books in your future? Oh yeah. Do you, I would like, do you it. like being a writer? I lo- I really love it. Yeah. I mean, um, it was such a, it was so hard, but it was also the most rewarding experience mm-hmm. and um, touring. It was a joy too, especially it's so much easier than touring with a band. It's a joke. You walk into a place five minutes before you start holding, <laughs> holding a book and a pen. I mean, it's, it was wild. Anyways, um, I have, uh, I just finished a proposal for a second book, which I'm not um, going to talk much about because I don't even know if it's going to come together or not, but I, um, I'd be excited if I got to do this. Is it another nonfiction piece? It would be nonfiction. Yeah. 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 Do you have any fictional aspirations? Sure. Yeah. Um, I wrote, uh, you know, one of the things, one of my major focuses in film school was screenwriting Mm -hmm. and those were, uh, so I have like three, you know, not good full length screenplays from college, but, um, uh, I, you know, I find, I think a lot of the song, the Hill songs are fiction, um, mm-hmm. stories that are mostly invented and I have ideas for, uh, for all kinds of things, you know, movie series. I, yeah, I have, I have notebooks full of ideas for different stuff. It, it's just a matter of, um, finding time to flesh them out. I've noticed with myself, a lot of the time I'll start writing one and I'll get really excited and I'll write 20 or 30 pages in one night. And then I'll go back to it a week later and be like, why did I? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> I, I'm totally disillusioned with it. Um, but the one I'm working on now, I, I, I still like, I just have to finish it. I found, I've, I have found quarantine to not be very creatively stimulating. Well, that's perfectly fine. I'm talking to a lot of friends about that very issue. We're all reacting to this differently. And if your reaction and uh, your way to stay healthy is to work on a bunch of shit. Great. And if your reaction to this is, I just need to sit here and watch 
8,000 episodes of Impractical Jokers. That's great too. Like whatever it's, um, you know, uh, immediately articles and tweets started to come out like, well, hot shot. Like you said, it was always a time issue about you not writing your great American novel. Like, well, let's see what you got. And um, that's the wrong way to think about this. I mean, yeah. what we really want, what I think we really want to do as people and artists is, and, and is listen to the moment. What what that means to us, yeah. Um, as long as you're doing that, I think then, Jesus Christ, give yourself a break, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, are you uh, are you watching or reading or listening to anything lately to to kind of stay grounded? Um, I listen to a lot. You know, uh, one of the biggest ways I'd like to, um, uh, you know, kind of let off steam or just tune out a little bit is uh, funny podcasts. I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts mm. that brings me a lot of joy. And then um, I've been catching up on, I've said I re- would read or listen to um, things that people have sent me that have piled up and I'm going to get through that. I think that's a good use of time. And then um, uh, reading, I've been just kind of picking up books like you know, last week I I went through like half of the Emily Dickinson poems again, and oh. and then when it was April fourteenth, I read a bunch from um, a book about John Wilkes Booth. You know, I just kind of I I'm kind of letting myself do a free swim. It's fun. Yeah. Well, we do have the time to do things like that now. Yeah. Well, I hope you're staying healthy, staying indoors, both of you, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Enjoying your cats. Yeah. That's why I love I lo- Yeah, I, I love your cat. <laughs> She's a sweetie. Yeah, she's a great cat. Um, yeah. I know. I'm happy to have my dog with me. It helps. What's your dog's name? Nilla, like vanilla. <laughs> what kind of dog is it? She's a standard poodle. Nilla the standard poodle. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've posted photos of her. You've probably seen them. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll, I'll take another look. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's a sweetheart and she she's probably living her favorite life right now cuz everyone's home. <laughs> I think I think if there's any winners in this, it's the pets. It definitely is the pets. They don't know what's going on. They don't know to worry. Nope. Unless sadly, you know, their owner dies. Oh god, I sure, just, I, know. I figured out a way to make it dark. I know. Fuck. We almost but, made it out. <laughs> but animals at in good homes with um, owners that are healthy. I mean, this is the dream. Yeah, I know. And good for them. They deserve it. Their animals are so, uh, what a wonderful thing to have in your life. I, mean, I know. I agree. Christ. <laughs> Especially now. We don't deserve them. I know. It's true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday morning to chat Thanks, with Jeremy. me. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, I I look forward to checking out other episodes and thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for coming. All right. Bye buddy. Take care.